Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors In. This podcast features top-performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Kelly Kasperson, who is a urologist specialist with advanced training in pelvic medicine and surgery. She specializes in urogynecology, which deals with female-specific urological disorders such as stress, urine incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, and vaginal atrophy caused by menopause and sexual health. She has a wonderful podcast titled uh, You Are Not Broken with over 300,000 downloads where uh, she discusses misconceptions, research, relationships, all things related to sexual health. Dr. Kasperson attended the University of Minnesota for medical school and University of Colorado for her surgical internship and urology residency. She's enthusiastic about empowering women via mind and body control while dispelling prevalent misunderstandings about female anatomy that can lead to pain. To follow up with Dr. Kasperson on urology and to keep up to date on her release of her new book, You Are Not Broken, so same name as her podcast, you can find Dr. Kasperson on Instagram at Kelly Kasperson MD. That's Kelly C-A-S-P-E-R-S-O-N-M-D. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Kasperson to the inn. Hello, Dr. Kasperson. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, there's a lot for me to really dive into, but I want to start at a very unusual place, or rather, it's a person in this case, uh, and uh, that is Esther Perel. So it seems that you are a big fan of her, and rightfully so. Uh, as a practicing physician, do you find yourself using some of the works of Esther Perel or other intellectuals or psychotherapists, in this case, uh, during your consultations that engage? within the field of sexual health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Esther Perel is amazing. Mating in Captivity is a phenomenal book. It should probably just be given as a, as a wedding gift to anybody getting married. Um, you know, one of the main things that, especially for pelvic health and sexual health, is we give resources to people because we all, we all think we didn't get a sex education, but we did. It's just a crappy one, right? And so a lot of, you know, why we feel broken in, in a lot of that is we just don't have the good education. And so I have a list of resources for people when they come and see me and Esther Perel is on there. She's amazing. She's done wonderful things with social media as well. She's a big podcaster. Her, she's got her hands in all the media stuff. Besides the fact that she speaks like five or eight languages, she's amazing. Um, but yeah, she just has just a wonderful way of thinking about relationships and sexuality. And she just she's so eloquent to listen to as well. I guess if I were to give a background on Esther Perel for the listeners, I would say she's known for her advice on rekindling the fire that burnt out in the relationship or keeping the fire going, right? So, and I say this to segue into the bizarre statistic that you mentioned in an interview uh, that within six to eight, 18 months of a relationship, the spontaneous sexual desire for one's respective partner diminishes, right? So, if you had to give advice for folks who are experiencing that state of diminished desire, would you... Would your advice uh, vary by age group or do the fundamentals kind of apply across the board? So like, let's say a couple in their 20s versus in their 50s. I think the I think it is universal as far as like the long, you know, I, I talk to people, 
you know, the people message me on Instagram and they're like, don't forget about me. I'm 24 and I've been in a seven year long, long term relationship. Right. And so we kind of stereotype these long term relationships as people being in their 50s. But it's like, no, you could be in a long term relationship quite young. You might have different hormones going on. Right. So 20 year old, 24 year old might have a nicer reserve of testosterone, which is where kind of the spontaneous desire hormone comes from. Same with, you know, estrogen. But um, so hormones might be a little bit different, but that kind of punch drunk love that doesn't last forever. I think everybody is going to experience it at some point if you stay in a relationship. Right. And uh, as I was doing my research, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you really go well and beyond uh, to seek answers from different fields. For example, you emphasize in an interview and I, sum- and I summarize evolutionarily a uh, woman find it best to have responsive desire whereas men have more more so like spontaneous desire so i guess can you please elaborate like what this means for the audience and how this applies to urological health sure i mean the first thing to know when we're ever trying to interpret you know historic data is we don't have much, right? right? We don't really know why we evolved to have the body parts we have put put in the order that they are. So a lot of this is like, you know, expert conjecture. And I think the other thing that's important when talking about sexuality is we tend to stereotype, but we tend to get a little heteronormative and forget that everybody's different and everybody's on a spectrum and kind of all that. So I always just want to like lead by being like, it's not to exclude anybody. We just sometimes it's a little simpler to like stereotype to get a point across, but it's never meant to offend anybody. Um, but I think what you're leading at is like in our society, I mean, think of the music we listen to, think of the Hollywood movies we watch is like we're really fed this this education of spontaneous desire is the norm. Right. But what we know with a lot of lived experiences is responsive desire is actually the norm, meaning I'm not spending my whole day thinking about sex. But once I'm put in a sexual context with a partner that I love, it's a great time. Right. And a lot of those people, whether they're male or female, feel very broken because they think they're supposed to have spontaneous desire all the time. And a lot of that is just not having adequate information and then being fed, you know, what sells, right? Sex sells, top 10 country hits sell, where it's all talking about spontaneous desire and you've lost it and now it's broken. And so we just don't get a great education. Yeah. And it's very interesting to say that because with women, uh, who are experiencing menopause, right? There is this like stereotype or this notion is that, oh, uh, they have low libido, which is something that you want to kind of, I guess, deconstruct is like, like that is not the case. It's just the stereotype or the standards that have been set in place. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot, it's a myth, right? It's a myth of menopause that women become asexual. They, we really desexualize women who aren't able to reproduce in our society, right? One way we do that is by saying menopausal women aren't sexual. Um, And if you look at the experts, if you look at who the experts at having sex are, they're all people in their fifth, sixth, seventh decades of life. It takes that long to become that good at sex. And so you're like, if all the experts are that old, with some exceptions, of course, but like the people who say have meaningful, magnificent sex, they are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yet we say those people are asexual in our society. We have a huge disconnect of who like the actual experts are. And some theories on that is you're finally comfortable enough in your own skin. You finally know what you want and how to ask for it. You're finally decent at communicating, right? Like all of these skills that come along with age and experience. Perfectly well put. So I do want to rewind the clock a little bit. Uh, you have become an expert in the field of sexual wellness for women. Uh, now, this might be me speaking out of ignorance, but what I know from 
uh, urology training is that it heavily utilizes a procedural and science-based foundation. And I think it's only in the past few decades that we're now seeing the progression of urology into the sensitive parts of health, such as, you know, sexual function, gender identity, fertility, etc. So, Coming into the field with all the clinical and scientific knowledge, did you have an interaction with the patient in your like earlier days uh, where you felt that you didn't have enough of that biopsychosocial training to effectively balance your heavy science background to consult someone effectively? Yeah, 100%. I'm only getting better at this, and I, was, I wasn't always good at it. <laughs> so, um, I mean... Western medicine doesn't talk about sex much, and Western medicine's done a, uh, you know, a job on separating the brain from the body. Why is that? Uh... Um, well, I, a couple of things. Number one, the brain was, is actually decently complicated, and we just didn't know a lot for a while. Um, and then I think, you know, the other field of study is like, you've got the psychologist and the psychiatrist, and then you have like the body-based people, and they're not always coming from the same place. But we really separated brain from body, which... Then you get into the topic of sex and you've got all the psychologists and sex therapists talking about the psychosocial component, relationship, your views on sex, all very important. But forgetting hormones, body part, are you having pain? Do you have some you know, erectile dysfunction? Right? There's a biologic part to it too. Now right. the biologic people who are the physicians, we don't know how to ask about relationships or abuse or you know, all the like psychosocial parts. How do you feel about sex? How did your family tell you? Did your family tell you it was okay to be a sexual person, right? Like all of that stuff that ties into seeing yourself as worthy of sexuality. So really the bringing it all together is where, I mean, it's such a huge, incredibly huge topic when you do that. Because you've got, now you've got, now I, now I have to talk about everything. But to me, that's what makes it so fun. Right. And how long would you say the journey has been so far where it's like you have had that experience where it's like, okay, um, I have not felt adequately enough to bring all aspects. So I need to go ahead and learn and, you know, learn about the psychology, learn about the social aspects the, of sexual dynamics. Um, probably in my third year now. I mean, when you when you know enough that you can write a book, it's a good sign that you know a lot about something, <laughs> right? When you're looking at it, you're like, I got 180 pages down about this topic. You've spent some time. You can't just write a book about a topic, right? Like what it takes to know. You know, I read somewhere, it's like the amount of books you have to read in order to write one book is like dozens. So, you just, but you just get to keep going. I see your Instagram uh, stories with uh, books that you have read. And I mean, some of them are like I have uh, read and they're just phenomenal, to say the least. Um, So one of the stereotypes, I guess, about urology is that they are surgeons who are also unconventional in the sense that they're considered super friendly, you know, not the... Uh, quote-unquote like surgical personality type so when you were applying to residency did you know what kind of urology you wanted to practice down the line no <laughs> <laughs> i had no i had no idea um but in medical school the urologists were very friendly they were very funny they sat got to sit down for like half of their surgeries which was attractive to me um also their surgeries are decently short but the really the thing that attracted me to urology was instant gratification so mm. there's a kidney stone stuck you took it out. There's a bladder tumor. It's gone. A person couldn't pee. Now their bladder's draining. So it's like that instant gratification that to me, that was my fix. And I was like, I can't see myself adjusting lisinopril doses for the rest of my life. Right, and like okay. encouraging me, like maybe consider not smoking cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And like, 
doing that and just not seeing that instant gratification. I love knowing that because I showed up to work, like lives got changed that day. That's that's exactly like how my brain works. And so just, you know, for people when they're thinking about what they like, what I did was I did, I was fortunate enough to do urology early on in third year. Never, I didn't know a surgeon. Certainly I didn't know a female surgeon, right? In, I, in Minnesota, when I was in medical school, there was one female urologist in the entire state. I, I never oh met God. her. Um, but so I did urology, I fell in love with it. And I said, okay, well, I hadn't been considering this, but I'll just do whatever beats urology then. And so that was my metric for the rest of third year was, did this beat urology? Was this better than urology? And it just kept coming down to like, no, it didn't. And so then I did urology. Huh, that is a good uh, tactic. So considering your great deal of interest and expertise with women's sexual empowerment, did you also consider gynecology? Yes, but delivering babies at two in the morning, to me, like, uh, at least I had enough foresight to be like, is, do I, is the miracle of birth so freaking amazing that I want to be like, exhausted okay. to do it, right? Yeah. And so yeah, delivering, ba- like, it's amazing to deliver a baby, but I didn't want to make a career out of it. Well, the, I mean, the other thing that makes me, I'd say, powerful right. in my expertise of this is I was trained in the male. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of gynecologists who try to empower, you know, what happens with women and women's health. And they're like, and I'm like, but we don't treat a man like that. And they have no idea how we treat men because they don't treat men. Right. But I, but here I have this amazing platform of like, well, when a 40 year old man comes in with low testosterone, I just don't tell him to deal with it learn to meditate and like life's tough and you're getting old. We don't ever treat men like that. But here we are telling women just to deal with the signs of menopause because that's what happens when you get. And so I have that very unique position of seeing how we treat you know all genders because I treat all genders. And I get to say, hold on, let's treat everybody the exact same. Why aren't we? So I, yeah, the urology is just a very unique position that yeah. way. It seems like it is a very powerful place to be at where it's like you get to see the binary and like everything in between. So I think it would be kind of unjust for us to not discuss time management um, because you have a podcast, which is uh, doing very well, to say the least. Also, congrats on the 300,000 downloads landmark, by the way, which is <laughs> incredible. Um, you are a practicing physician seeing around, I would say, what, like roughly 30 patients per day on a clinical day? Yeah. Yeah. You are a mom, a wife, a daughter, insert none with respect to family members, hobbies. How did you decide that you can fit writing a book into your already busy schedule? Well, it's amazing how much time we take up watching sports, watching Netflix, playing video games and drinking alcohol. Okay. Right. And so I'll just, I'll put that out there. And none of that's bad in and of itself. But I think when you realize like, well, I, I mean, I have this very clear understanding of I am here for this limited time. What am I going to do with it? And it just helps me with a lot of clarity, like rest when you need to rest. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is like, it's like the average American watches like five hours of television a day, right? Like the average American could write a book if they just stopped watching television five hours a day. But there's there's always time, especially if you're passionate about it, right? Mm. And I got to the point where I'm like, you get kind of good at one thing. Like I got good at keeping my children alive. I got good, good at, right. <laughs> at, at, you know, doing my day job. I got good at figuring out exercise and sleep, 
right? And so it's like you get good at all those things and then you have the opportunity to say what's next. Uh, certainly I never want anybody to be like, oh, well, you're not writing a book right now. But like, I got to, I had the opportunity to write a book once I figured out how to get good at everything else. And certainly when you kind of cut all that, like, you know, it blows my mind that people watch two football games every Sunday. Like, I don't, I don't understand how people do it, but it's like, there's so much time. We just are kind of fed this diet of, we don't have enough time. Yeah. I mean, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So do you structure your days in advance where it's like, okay, like I have this specific time slot that I will dedicate to writing, dedicate to, you know, podcasting, etc. Yeah. I mean, I'm not super strict about it, but you know, I give my, I write down what I want to accomplish in the week and I check it off. My other secret with that is like, well, that's just neuroscience though, right? Like don't keep your lists in your head, write them out. It's very mm -hmm. stressful for the brain to try to hold lists to do. And once I figured that out, you write it down and then you're not stressed about what did I, did I forget something? Um, so that's neuro, that's a neuroscience hack. Um, and then you don't get to add to your list anymore unless somebody's like bleeding or hemorrhaging. Like you don't get to add to your list. If it wasn't important enough at the beginning of the week, don't add it. Just don't stress yourself out that way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is very powerful. So what compelled you to write the book? Uh, I mean, you are very much of an expert in this field. Uh, did you feel that, okay, I have this podcast now I, I want to kind of transcribe all that, all the information that I've said into a book? Yeah, I, I didn't actually transcribe it though. I, I kind of, I mean, you, again, you read so many books to become knowledgeable about something and you're like, right. I just, I don't have, there was like two themes that kept coming up. One theme is the very academic people who write books, right? They're PhDs, they research sex, and it is actually possible to write a very boring book about sex. I've read plenty of them, but it's like, this doesn't translate to the average person, right? right. They, they just, they can't read at that level. And it's actually kind of boring and dry. And it doesn't really like, how do, how do I apply this to my life? Right? So there's that type of book. And then there's the like, very woo book of like, one book literally tells you you're supposed to breathe into your spleen. And as a Western trained physician, I'm like, eh, spleens aren't respiratory, you know, like, <laughs> like, my brain doesn't work that way. And I'm like, and busy women, they don't have time to breathe, to figure out how to breathe into their spleen. They just want to like, right. enjoy sex again. Right? So it's like this woo woo section and this very academic section. And I'm like what I want is I want for the average busy woman right like for I don't want this to be too academic and I don't want it to be too woo-woo-y I want to but I want to combine the knowledge of all of that into something very practical so I basically I was you know the more you read the more you're like but where's this book you know, mm -hmm. and then you're like, that's the book you're supposed to write. Because, yeah, like intellectuals, when they do tend to write books, some of them at least, uh, it it seems like, like you're reading 50 different studies, um, research papers, which is just like combined into one thing. But yeah, very excited for your uh, book that is to come out. I hear like it's like it is very honest, but it also very like funny, you know. Hope hard. so. Yeah. It, I, I worry it's very, you know, it's such a sensitive topic. Right. Yeah. It was like, I'm going to piss off somebody. But if I was totally afraid of like making everybody happy, I shouldn't have written a book. But, you know, the fact that I help so many people and I hear about how I help them all the time and I empower them to go to their own doctor and ask for something, you know, mm. whether it's hormones or to get something checked or a referral. And it like I've empowered people to go take care of their health. Right. Which is more than I've ever done maybe just being a doctor is like I get to help people all over the world and the podcast you know the podcast ranks top in like Oman and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and like countries I never even thought would be listening right. so it's an incredible honor to be able to you know 
have this passion that, that I get to keep serving for. No, that's really good. The agency that kind of kickstarted this all. So speaking of agency, you are very big into that. And um, you had a post um, where it listed out the five components of agency. Now, step two or component two of the five components is quote, uh, feeling confident that you can make good decisions, end quote, which I think is the hardest step for many people because anxiety and fear is built into us evolutionarily. And there's always this paradox of overthinking or like analysis paralysis where you weigh out the pros and cons just to the point where it's like you can't even make the decision, right? So how do you tackle that state of inaction? Or what advice would you have for someone who is trying to get over this step? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one way to think about it is like inaction and weighing the pros and the cons, that's just a form of buffering, right? That's a, literally a form of choosing to do nothing. Like you're making a choice by choosing by not choosing, right? And just so just realize like when you just think you're being so passive and trying to figure it out, it's like, no, 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 that's a choice too. Um, and I think really what it comes down to is having your own back. And I think so many people aren't trained to have their own back, right? Of like, no matter what happens, I'm going to be there for myself. And it was the best decision that I made with the information I had at that time. That's step five, right? Maybe. Uh, yeah, okay. I forget. The whole thing with agency, uh, you also mentioned that agency is very much needed when you're talking about sexual health, you know, having control over how you want to experience life. Yeah, and I mean how women are socialized in our in America in many in many countries is to be the object of desire. Mm. Uh, women aren't allowed to desire; they're to be somebody else's object of desire. It's a very passive role that we're put in, right? So we're kind of taught from an early age, like, well, just wait till Prince Charming comes along. You know, if you do something right, Prince Charming will come along. And I'm oversimplifying it, but right. the point is, and if you look at the states, about nine states actually mandate consent a discussion about consent in sexual education. And so we have all these people being like, well, your job's to kind of, you know, draw them in. But it's like, you get to say yes, you get to say no, you get to say this isn't working for me, you get to say this is what feels good for me. Like all of that is not taught at all. Right. We're gonna shift gears a little bit into the clinical setting. What does a typical clinical day for urologist Dr. Casperson look like? I see all ages, all genders. I focus on female. Um, there are 9% of America's urologists are female. So it's a, we're quite busy because 51% of Americans are female. Uh, mm -hmm. And they all have pelvises. Right. All Americans have pelvises, actually. Yeah. So most of them. Um, so I t do tend towards female. As far as, you know, prolapse, incontinence, recurrent UTIs, vulvovaginal disorders, you know, things like that. Um, I do a mix of clinic. That's the cool thing about urology. We do a mix of surgery and clinic. That's not good if you don't like clinic at all. But I mean, I've got people that I've been taking care of for 10 years. You know, we just, we did that continuity and to form that relationship with people is available. Whereas in a lot of surgical specialties, it's not. Isn't that perfect? It's like you can have instant gratification while you can also have longitudinal care for your patients. For I'm your telling patients. you, urology is perfect. <laughs> it's like like you're trying to convince me as well, which is working. <laughs> I'll, I'll convince anybody. Urology is urology is the best. No, tell me, good. tell me, tell me that it is. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm gonna have to wait for my uh, rotational years, but yes, I so far it's looking really good, really appealing. So, um. 
research data on sex uh, is very similar to data on nutrition. What I mean by that is uh, there's data on sex that can be challenged uh, with data from the opposite side. So does that make it difficult for you to, I guess, consult patients who have specific urological disorders like urine incontinence? No, I, I mean, I don't think so. I think, you know, the there's a lot, especially when you get into social science data, is like, that's just what you found because you, you research those 20 people, you know, right. it's, it's much different than benchtop, you know, chemistry, science sort of stuff. Um, no, it just adds to the complexity of it of like, hey, you know, we, we know some things. These are your options. Okay, so it's like, I'm going to lay out the options. And then you, after you have all the information, you choose what you want to do with it. Yeah, I see. I think... We are kind of nearing the end. Uh, so if you had to give to one book for overall self-improvement, I know that you're a big uh, reader, and one book for sex ed to your close friend, uh, what would those two books be? Mm, good questions. Okay, so the number one book for self-improvement improvement is Marie Forleo's Everything is Figure Outable, hmm. which will help with that person who's trying to weigh all the things and they don't know what to do. Um, everything is figure outable. You didn't know how to podcast, you figured out how to podcast, right? You didn't yeah. know you weren't a medical student, you figured out how to get into med school. Everything's figure outable. And once you view the world that way, the world opens up. So that's a great book. Um, sex ed book. Uh, can I do it by gender? Sure. Yeah, okay. Please. So for the man, uh, for the male who's interested in a heterosexual relationship with a vulva owning uh, person, um, She Comes First by Ian Kerner is fantastic. And for the female, so for the vulva owner, um, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski or Becoming Cliterate by Laurie Mintz, both exceptional until my book comes out and then my book. But right, those are yeah. two, those are two uh, very, very good ones. Okay, perfect. Uh, sounds good. Thank you so much. Now, since we're near the end of the podcast, we like to imagine that you are a guest who stopped by Doctor's Inn to rest for lunch. Um, and now before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me, we tend to ask our guests if you have one quote or piece of advice that I can frame on my wall. So what would that, you know, quote or piece of advice be? It can be something you live your life by. Oh, well, you only have one life. As far as I know, there isn't a do over. I mean, there right. might be, but as far as I know, there is not a do-over. Um, and to go on that, be happy where you are, so choose wisely where you go. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kasperins, for you know coming to Doctors. And I know this is a little bit different from your other podcasts that you've been featured in, especially considering the audience. Uh, but we really, truly appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors Inn. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors Inn Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube to watch our animated videos for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to check out Dr. Kasperson's book when it comes out and also our podcast. See you next time, guys. Bye.